BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. What day is today? Wednesday, October 18th. I've forgotten what day it was. And as I do before every uh, bonus interview, I always leave a little something that's in the newspaper uh, to give you a sense of what's going on in the world as this conversation takes place. Now, today's going to be a little different. I'm going to go millennialistic on you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not using the newspaper. I'm using my phone. I'm going to show my distinguished guest. Yes, indeed, is a phone. Getting my news from a phone. Uh, millennials everywhere are rejoicing. I was just telling my distinguished guest that, to me, any, a millennial is anyone under the age of 40 and older, the age, older than the age of 10. So I don't care about the distinction between Zs and millennials. All right? Don't, I don't want to hear about it. You're all the same to me. And you all read stuff on phones, and that's why newspapers are dying. All right, that's my old man. It's Ted News. They're killing the newspapers. Um, this story, man, this story says so much about Chicago, and it's not even about Chicago. I want to give a shout-out um, to uh, Hunter Klaus from WBEZ. And he puts together this, uh, I love it. It's a, It's like, I don't know what you call it, a blog? Comes out every day of the rundown. And it's like the afternoons, what's worthy of what Hunter thinks is worthy of note uh, from the day. And uh, so shout out to you, Hunter. Uh, Hunter once took a picture of me with Mayor Daly. Another story for another time. Uh, I don't put I don't think he put that on his resume, but it's true. He took that picture of me and Mayor Daly, baby Daly, uh, older listeners. Richard M. Daly, that is. Anyway, here's the headline. Plans are in the works to send migrants in Chicago to St. Louis. That's the headline. Hundreds, if not thousands, of migrants in Chicago could be moved to St. Louis under a plan spearheaded by the International Institute of St. Louis, a nonprofit organization that provides services to immigrants and refugees. Teaming up with unions and philanthropic leaders, the Institute hopes resettling migrants will boost St. Louis's workforce and stem the city's decline. I will repeat that because it's worth repeating. The people in St. Louis, which St. Louis, a red state, uh, hope 
Resettling migrants will boost St. Louis's workforce and stem the city's population decline. Uh, quote, it could be the potential for great relations between both cities, says Carlos Ramirez, vice president of Latino Outreach for the Internet Institute. I assume both cities are Chicago and St. Louis. Quote, if the migrants are going to be in a better place, St. Louis is going to be in a better place and Chicago is going to be in a better place. I think everybody wins. Well, I just want to say congratulations, St. Louis. You show more sense in the city of Chicago, which um, is, as I say on this podcast all the time, the most pathetic city in the country when it comes to uh, the migrants coming from Illinois, uh, excuse me, for coming in, uh, from Texas. Absolutely clueless, Chicago. You act as though you've never built a building in your life. This is a city that brags so much about it being broad shoulders, monsters of the midway, you know, tough guys. And we we built ourselves up from the fire. By the way, I just read an article in the New Yorker that said the whole every, everything we know about the fire is made up. It's not even real, but whatever. We built ourselves up from the fire. We reversed the flow of the Chicago River. But bring a busload of immigrants up from Texas. You guys go into a fetal position. Can't do anything. Can't hammer. You can't like turn a screwdriver. I'm scared. We don't know what to do. Let's pull tents out. <laughs> anyway, so now the big plan is to move them to St. Louis. Because St. Louis wants, they need people. Last I looked, Chicago needed people. Isn't that what the, isn't that what the Tribune's already always telling us? Cranes always telling us Chicago needs people. Everyone's leaving. You know, Republicans are going. It's a sign of what happens when a Democratic city, you know, can't run anything. They people leave. Well, here are people coming in, and Chicago goes, "No, we can't handle it." Oh, so thank you, St. Louis. You got more sense than all of Chicago. You know what? The only thing left. Oh, oh, wait, hold on. Before my distinguished guest weighs in, and she's really eager to weigh in, I'm going to do what I always do and ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself and then weigh in with your thoughts. Go. Okay. This is Sandy Weisenberg, also known as S.L. Weisenberg. And I am about a mile or so from the distinguished Ben Jaropi's headquarters, <laughs> uh, I'm proud to say. And I'm just reading here from the Sun-Times that St. Louis um, had welcomed 2,000 Afghan refugees, and they um, had an effort to settle Bosnians in the 1990s. So they're very active there. They're like Minnesota. I, I, I just want to uh, make this clarification, uh, Sandy, before I go further. There are a lot of really good people in the city of Chicago, generous, compassionate people in the city of Chicago who are doing a lot of sensational work welcoming uh, immigrants to the city. You know, when I throw the city of Chicago under a bus, as I do pretty much every week on my podcast, Sandy, it's because the city as a whole, not talking about these particular individuals who are doing great jobs and are really generous and more passionate, a lot more than I am. All I do is sit around watching sports on TV when I'm not going for long walks with Sandy Weisenberg. And uh, so there's a lot of good people in the city of Chicago, but collectively the city of Chicago you know, like it's political elite, it's cultural elite, it's media. They're just pathetic. I don't know what else to say, Sandy. You know what? Uh, they just act like 
the concept of people moving to their city is overwhelming. And they just, the best they could do is come up with tents. So St. Louis is ahead of us on that front. Do you have any more thoughts on that, Sandy, before we move on? My only thought is Eric Adams is not quite a model figure in welcoming the the people from the buses. Uh, Eric Adams, of course, is the mayor of New York City. Sandy Weisenberg is actually not from Chicago. But ladies and gentlemen, that was a quintessential Chicago response. Chicago. <laughs> Sandy's, Sandy well, has been here New so York long, she's acting worse. like a Chicago. Yeah. Well, you never tell anybody in Chicago something bad about their city. They go, well, Ben, you know, and then fill in the blank. Peru doesn't do it well either. I'm like, what does that got to do with anything? And then in the 90s, whenever I criticize Chicago, they go, why don't you move to Detroit? What? Detroit? Why'd you pick Detroit? They always pick Detroit. So, Sandy, at least you're you're varying. It's a variance on that one. You pick New York. Uh, it's true. Eric Adams is actually acting pretty pathetic. Come on, Eric Adams. Get your game. Andy, Sandy, I don't do a podcast in New York critiquing uh, New York politics. I'd have a field day if I did. Okay. Um, all right. Let's. That's that's fine. That's the, don't nothing to apologize for. You're you're, you're essentially show that you are a Chicagoan. Um, so Sandy's here uh, in part to have a conversation with me, and also in part to promote her wonderful book, which I am showing her. I have a copy of, and um, uh, it's called "The Wandering Womb." It's a series of essays in search of home. And I kind of, I guess it's kind of relevant that we did begin. I didn't think about this; it was not planned. I just saw uh, the. Um, the email from uh, WBEZ, because uh, in many ways, uh, everybody is searching for home these days. Essays in Search of Home uh, by Sandy Weisenberg. And Sandy's been writing essays, I want to say, going back to the 70s. Uh, she teaches writing. She's a professor of creative writing. I think you're a professor. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and uh, the, the reason... I've been teaching, I've taught in universities. So does that make you a professor? No, because it's sort of <laughs> like it's like the it's like royalty, you know, like there's a king, prince, and count was it counts and and sirs and different things. Um to the student, like anybody who's up there in the front of the room is the professor, but I've been an adjunct lecturer. Emphasis on adjunct, which means extra. Uh, and uh, at one point, I remember, I think you were at the Art Institute because you invited me to come talk to your class twice. Yes. Uh, yes, I was. Mm-hmm. That was many yeah, years thank ago. Thank you. Uh, so uh, the other day, uh, it was about two months ago, I want to say, or maybe a month ago, I was walking out of my house to go for a walk on a Sunday, and there was Sandy uh, walking down the street with her husband, and I joined them, uh, and I said, oh, you guys are probably going to can't handle a walk you're not you're rookies and they we ended up doing like this incredible walk all over the city uh it was a blast and um so i knew then and there i'd have to bring sandy on to talk about her book why don't you do a little promotion you got a great honor and um you do the honors of reading about your honor go ahead oh reading about my honor where i got i've got to jump to the email i just sent you okay There is something called the Cherby Award, and maybe your distinguished listeners have not heard of it because it it sounds a little silly, but um, 
It's actually a very nice award. It's from the Chicago Review of Books. And they choose a short list of finalists in different categories. And then they choose the winner on December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, for those of you who are not millennials, if we're going to continue picking on them. So in the nonfiction shortlist, we have King a Life by Jonathan Eig, Who is the City For by Blair Kamen, Choosing Family and Memoir of Queer Motherhood and Black Resistance, Francesca Royster, BFF, A Memoir of Friendship Lost and Found by Christy Tate, in an alphabetical order, you may have noticed. The Wandering Womb, Essays in Search of Home, S.L. Weisenberg. And like, how can they compete with these guys? Really? <laughs> it's mean, like, you're going to say, my book, my book is better than the, the best um, bio of MLK? I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> Still, it's uh, a great honor. And uh, so congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's really cool. Uh, and I have no favorites in that race, ladies and gentlemen. And I have no pull whatsoever. I'm not on the committee. I don't get a vote. Mm, that's too bad. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to read the Jonathan Icke book uh, really soon. All right. So um, search uh, essays in search of home. Uh, I met uh, Sandy a long, 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 long time ago uh, back in, I want to say it was 1978. And she was a senior at Northwestern, uh, and I was uh, just out of college, and I moved in with a collection of Northwestern students. I was not from Northwestern, but it was in Evanston, uh, and Sandy was friends, or is friends, with one of, the, um, one of my roommates, uh, and I met Sandy. She was one of the Northwestern students that would be coming by the apartment over on Ridge Street in Evanston, beautiful downtown Evanston, my beloved hometown, which I love very much, uh, despite its many flaws. And um, so that was, wow, that was 22, 45 years ago, okay? Uh, it was a long time ago. And I've been following your career ever since. Uh, and in many respects, I think there's a sort of like a pattern of thing that ties it together. Uh, you're, you talk about In Search of a Home, uh, The Wandering Womb, your travels around uh, the country and around the world and the impressions that they've had on you. Uh, and I realize that I think of you in that moment at, as an Evanstonian, which is not what you are in any way, but that's kind of where it is lodged in my mind, how I categorize things, because that's where I first met you. Uh, and when I talk to you, your accent is more like Evanston's accent than where you're actually, quote unquote, from. So if we're going to talk to a writer who just wrote a book about searching uh, for home and how she's uh, been wandering her whole life, uh, at least her womb has been wandering with her. <laughs> um, why, don't, why don't we talk about where it began? Texas, which in a million years, ladies and gentlemen, as as even though she's from Texas, and I know she's from Texas, Sandy, I never associate you with Texas. I don't think of you as a Texan. Um, so what is it about Texas, I suppose, uh, that are, are you rebelling against Texas? You left it. You didn't go back to it. Um, talk about Texas and its significance in your life. Go ahead. 
We were Jews in Texas, Jews in Houston, and we thought it was normal to be Jewish in Houston. And it was normal that we all mostly lived in one neighborhood and then all mostly moved to another neighborhood. And mostly, if I met a Jewish person at school, my parents would know their family. And even, I'm going to make a leap here. Um, one Halloween, I, my husband and I were walking near the Sheridan L and we saw this young guy and we couldn't tell what he was dressed as. And we started talking to him. And it turned out that his uncle had gone to school with me in Houston. So Texas Jews, you know, move around. Um, and um, we, we knew there were Jews in other places, but the Jews in other places didn't know that we were there. And so all my life since I've left, people go, oh, I didn't know there were Jews in Texas. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You know, and they think you're a cowboy and such. We did have Go Texan Day, which someone has said is when um, Texans dress the way that other people think we dress every day. And I'm sorry, I can't attribute that quote. Um, we would, the girls would be able to wear pants to school and we would wear jeans and, you know, hats. Cowboy boots? Oh, we didn't have cowboy boots. But, it didn't go that um, far. It didn't go that far. But, I mean, the one thing was in high school, there was a Future Farmers of America, and they would bring their animals to school for a couple days. I'm not sure why, but they would be there near the track. So I don't think you had that in Evanston. No. <laughs> Although I always point this out, uh, before I was in Evanston, I lived in Rhode Island. And that's where I lived for about 11 years. And uh, so when my family, my parents told me uh, that we were moving to Evanston, I thought, don't hold us against me, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I lived in Rhode Island, which is for people who are geographically challenged on the east eastern end of the country. Uh, and on the Atlantic Ocean. And I thought everybody in Evanston would be um, riding a horse and wearing cowboy boots and hats. And boy, was I surprised uh, when I showed up in Evanston and that wasn't the case. Um, With your so horse. when you mentioned, uh, what's that? With your horse. Yes. My when you horse showed up in Evanston as an 11 year old with, you know, with your new horse, because you wanted to fit in. <laughs> my horse was a bicycle that I pretended was a horse when I wasn't pretending it was a motorcycle and I was Steve McQueen. Um, so you say that uh, you were a Jewish kid in Texas uh, and you had Jewish friends at your school, uh, at your high school. Were you a minority of Jewish kids in a school that was overwhelmingly Gentile? Or was this a school where there was a majority of the, of the student population was Jewish? We thought the majority was Jewish, but I think it was around 40% at most. And it was enough so that they, people noticed when the high holidays came around, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the fall, and a lot of kids weren't in class. So we were present absence. So you didn't grow up with a sense of uh, being alone in the school, you know, 
uh, of a sense of being a minority uh, in a school? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It was normal to be Jewish. You know, it was, it was normal. And um, that's what's hard for people to understand. People from the East Coast. And I didn't, I was geographically challenged. We had had, we had geography class, but still when I came to Chicago, I thought it was very close to New York, you know, and people talked about the Midwest and I really had no idea what they were talking about. And they talked about Chicago's inferiority complex. And I thought, my God, what are they talking about? Chicago's this big Northern city. And people still say to me, oh yeah, you went North. So there was really the idea of, North and South, that we didn't have a sense of ourselves as having been part of the Confederacy, though Texas had been. Well, that's what I'm. That's what I'm sort of getting at. It. Uh, so uh, I've been thinking a lot of Stevie Wonder today. So when you were in Texas, you were in it, but not of it. Uh, to quote the great Stevie Wonder, is that my how you saw mother? It? My mother was born in Texas, and my grandfather was born in Texas. Uh, my grand, my father came from elsewhere. He came from Mississippi, but um, they were Texans. My my f- grandfather in Dallas um, was pretty much self educated and self made. Though he had a mentor at the bank he worked at, and this mentor was later mayor of the city of Dallas. But he, he also was a member of the Klan. But apparently he didn't, you know, he didn't hold that against my grandfather that, you know, he was Jewish. That's wild. How did you know that? Did, did you talk to your grandfather about this? No, he never mentioned it. And my mother doesn't like me to mention it. But I've read it in I've read histories of, of Texas. And, and this guy was part of a a movement to change the way Texas was viewed from a Southern state to a progressive Western state, because um, the centennial of Texas was 1936. And so these men got together and were thinking, okay, we're going to have this state fair and how are we going to promote the state? And it's like, oh, you know, the South was kind of sluggish then, but like the West was more dynamic. So they consciously created um, a way of viewing Texas as the cowboy, the West, the Southwest. So they do you have that. memories that uh, I'm, by the way, very curious that a former Klansman would be <laughs> evolve in his life that we'd end up wanting to promote Texas as being like somehow rather progressive. If you follow what I'm saying, you know, yeah, uh, this guy's a former Klansman. Um, he might have been a current. Uh, he, he might have been a current Klansman. Wow! I don't. I didn't see. Roles. I did not see his his membership card. So, do you have memories of when uh, Kennedy was killed? Remember, I think <laughs> of Texas in the '60s. Uh, any boomer would do this. I think, of course, of John F. Kennedy's assassination. Why don't you tell us uh, about what memories you have of that? Okay. Before that, I'm going to tell you about something that happened after. My cousin, my older cousin from Oklahoma, came to stay with us one summer, and he was in college at Northwestern, and he had been traveling in Europe. 
And he said he would tell people where he was from and they go, Oklahoma, where's that? And they, he said, oh, it's near Texas. And they said, oh, Texas is terrible because that's where Kennedy was shot. So I had, I found that out. That was maybe a year after he was shot. Um, no, I remember I was in second grade and I heard it after school and I was waiting to tell my sister, you know, but she had heard in school and she said that her teacher was crying. And then for some unfathomable reason, we made a scrapbook and in it, we put in all the display ads of companies in Houston that said, we are sorry for the passing of John F. Kennedy. And we, and then we made buttons and I swear it was her idea, but she says it wasn't that said, I love JFK. And we wore them. So we, we are, you know, my parents, our parents were, were Democrats. They supported JFK. Um, and I remember maybe this was kindergarten. I don't know that we would say Kennedy, Kennedy is our man. Let's throw Nixon in the garbage can. <laughs> I don't remember that shit. Uh, yeah, maybe it was my, just uh, uh, west of the Texas thing. Yeah. Uh, my, um, my parents were lefties and um, Kennedy was the first Democrat they voted for uh, in a presidential election. You know, they just the Cold War, they were opposed to the Cold War. So uh, we're not a huge Kennedy uh, family in any way uh, growing up. But I do have this just association with uh, Texas with Kennedy. You said, you mentioned your, did I get you correct? Your father's from Mississippi? Right. Right. Uh, I know how well, they got there. Do you want to know how they got there? Yes. Okay. We're talking about wandering, so go ahead. Okay. So my grandmother was a child and living in this town called Pusfatin near Kaunas, now, uh, Lithuania. And the family wanted to immigrate. And they had to wait till her aunt got married. She was the last one to get married. And then um, my the men of the family went first to check it out and they went to Selma and we're, it's unknown why they went to Selma, except they had relatives in West Brockton, Alabama or West Blockton, which was a little bit West of Selma. So I'm not sure how they got there, but then everyone came to Selma and, um, my grandmother's uncles, their last name was Pruchna, and they got to Selma and changed it to Rosenberg. And they spelled it, a, each one of them spelled it a different way. One was Rosenberg ERG, and one was Rosenberg URG, and it's unknown why, and I've seen their tombstones. You know, you don't know. There's certain things you'll never know. They did it to haunt me. Nothing haunts me more than Berg. I've, I've, I know I've said this to you. I've shared this all the time. I'm dyslexic, so I really struggle. And Berg has always thrown me. Um, 
B-E-R-G, B-U-R-G. I got a feeling, Sandy, I'm going to spell your name wrong when I put it up on the internet and you'll correct me. No, I'll, I'll double check. But uh, so they chose that name in order to haunt me in future years. Yeah, um, just personally. Personally, they chose that. They're so they to, stayed, wait, they so stayed, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. They stayed in Selma. They, a couple, you know, among the family, there are a couple stores or as they say, stay, say there, stoas. Each one had a stoa, dry goods stoa. And um, I don't know why they moved. Maybe they weren't that successful. So um, they moved. They ended up going to Laurel, Mississippi, which um, was a new town. It was a town that started in the 1920s. So it wasn't a real old fashioned Confederate Southern town. Um, Though they did have Confederate statues when I went to visit. Um, And that's where they lived for a while. And then during the depression, their house got foreclosed on and they wanted to move to a big city so it was like either Houston, Baltimore, New Orleans. I mean, they chose Houston because there was a great uncle of mine who was there. So you don't know why exactly people do things. And I was surprised that the house was foreclosed on. I found that when I was doing research in the courthouse. And I was shocked, you know, because nobody had mentioned that. And maybe my father and his siblings didn't know that they were being protected. But I think a third of all houses were foreclosed on during the Depression. It wasn't part of the family lore? Mm-mm. It was just like the girls were getting older. We wanted them to go to college um, in, their, in the town we lived in. Um, we had always wanted to live in a bigger city with more Jews. Um, so they went to Houston. My father, my, somebody told me that when the kids were sick in Laurel, my grandmother would put them on the train to New Orleans so they could get treated because there were better doctors in New Orleans. Um, I think, you know, there'd be an adult accompanying them, but they believed in good doctors. Yeah. They put the kids, uh, (laughs) This shoved up. Go, you're sick. Go to New Orleans. Just, I don't want to be infected. And this other relative who um, went to, I think she went to a doctor in New Orleans, and he told her the best doctor for her was in Baltimore. So the whole family moved to Baltimore. That sounds like something you hear. You know what I mean? That's like one of those family. There's so many tales in a family. That's what I'm saying. I'm surprised that the foreclosure didn't become part of family lore. But uh, I know from some family history of my own that there's moments where a family, particularly depression families, they lose everything. So it's not something they're bragging about. You know what I'm saying? Right. Some right. They got to get out of town one step ahead of the creditor. And so it's like, hop in the car. We're going. It's midnight. Let's right. go. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. So. And it was, um, they had been very middle class, maybe upper middle class. And they, the Jews in, in, in Laurel, Mississippi were 
sort of part of the fabric of the white bourgeoisie. I've looked at um, newspapers from when my father and his siblings were born and their, um, their births were in the society section. You know, it was like Saul Weisenberg is, is, um, is happy. He's had his first son was born today. That's deep. So you're telling me, by the way, is your, are, are your parents still alive? My mother is. Okay. Your father died. My so you're, t- you're telling me your father uh, was raised in Mississippi mm-hmm. uh, and he did not carry with him like scars of anti-Semitism? Like just... No. I asked him once if he felt anti-Semitism and he said once he and his sister were walking down the street, I don't know if this was Houston or, or Laurel, and somebody said, look at those Dagos. And I said, well, that's Italians. And he says, yeah. <laughs> so that's the closest it got. The thing is, in the South, if you were in a smallish town and there weren't enough Jews to be seen as a threat in any way, and if they were middle class and owned a store, they were accepted. And because you were either black or white, and Jews were deemed white. So then they got all of white privilege. And I, there's exceptions. There was the lynching of Leo Frank in um, Atlanta. But um, this is generally how it was. Generally, Jews had stores. Um, my grandfather was an immigrant. This is the Weisenberg grandfather. But apparently he learned English very well and he got along with people. And um, somebody asked him in Mississippi, Will you, we'd like you to join the Baptist men's club. And he said, well, I can't join a Baptist club because I'm Jewish. And they said, oh, Saul, we don't think of you as a Jew. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> wow. My, my uh, first re- realization uh, that, Jews had white privilege uh, really came home to me. It was after I lived in Chicago. Harold Washington was the victor uh, of the Democratic primary. He faced off against uh, the Republican victor. Back day, in that day, we had partisan ways of electing our mayors. And uh, and that Republican was a man named Bernie Epton, who was a Jewish man from Hyde Park. And <laughs> suddenly, overnight, he became the great white hope. And so that's when I said, well, you know, on the scale of things here, at least in the city of Chicago, Jews are whiter than black people. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you were here for the uh, 83 election, but it had a big impact on my life. Uh, and how I, I was gone in 83, but I've read a lot about it. I came in 85, came back in 85. And I know that's haunted his son, uh, Jeff Epton. And... Bernie's it, it it could be an opera that Bernie Epton was a progressive even though he was a Republican I think he was I think he was a Republican because um he didn't want to be part of the Democratic machine I think mm-hmm. and he sold his soul yeah. because he had a chance to become mayor yeah 
and he he really fell in love with the people chanting his name. Uh, I don't know if I would call him a progressive, pushing back a little bit. Progressive is like a modern word uh, that has evolved in this century. Uh, I would say he's he was liberal, uh, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in civil rights. Uh, and um, but uh, anyway, that old little piece. Of his. Did your father speak with a, a like a thick Southern accent, like he was from Mississippi? Medium, medium thick. They believed in elocution. They believed in debate. So my father. Um, won, he was in debate and he won, he was the team that won the high school debate competitions in, when he was a senior in high school. Unfortunately, at his funeral, the rabbi was talking about his life and he goes, Avram, and my father's name was Avram. He said, Avram was in debate. He was not just a good debater. He was a master debater. (laughs) (laughs) The rabbi's got jokes, ladies and gentlemen. No, he didn't know what he was saying. He did (laughs) not know know. what he was saying. No, I do that all the time. There's a guest that comes on the show, and um, he's this guest, this particular guest, I don't want to say his name now because I don't want to draw attention to the fact that I make the same mistake. And I go, this guy's a master debater. And every time I say (laughs) that, I go, ugh. Good, Ben. Come on, clean it up. Uh, so, all right. So, you never had a Texas accent. Did like you were conscious of it? Did you just not want to have one? Did you rid it? Did, you, you, you know, did you just will yourself not to have it? Go ahead. I didn't know if I had an accent or not, but I found a cassette tape that I made in high school journalism class where we had to make a little. Um, broadcast. And I said, this is Sandy Weisenberg from radio <laughs> station, blah, 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 blah. But I'm a mimic. I'm an unconscious mimic. So I start talking like people I'm talking with. So I think I lost my accent pretty, pretty quickly without wanting to or thinking about it. And sometimes I feel like maybe that's a part of me I miss. And um, my husband notes that if I'm on the phone or with my family, that sometimes I might start speaking with a Southern accent afterwards. Or if I go back to Houston, I come back with the accent. So this uh, ability to to, uh, blend in with your environment, which is sort of what mimicking accents is all about. uh, How has that shaped you since you've come to Chicago? How are you? How are you a Chicagoan? Because I'm old and I go way back. So I remember (laughs) things. You know, I remember where I was when I heard about Harold Washington. Um, I've read about the history of Chicago. I know about the Chicago riots. Um, I didn't read that piece in the New Yorker yet. But um, I'm anxious to to hear what, what my misconceptions are. I was a docent for a while for the Chicago Architecture Foundation. So um, I feel connected. I feel con- I've written about the Haymarket riots. Okay, so I, I didn't make myself clear with my question. So yes, I understand you under- you know the history of Chicago. Yes, I understand that you know like the significance of Chicago's architecture. Uh, you've read about Chicago in a book. Your response to that question, the opening bit about Eric Adams was quintessentially Chicagoan. 
So how have you, your character, been shaped by the city? That's what I mean. Not like, oh, yes, I know that uh, Harold Washington was the mayor after Jane Byrne, and before Jane Byrne, it was Michael Bolandic, and before Michael Bolandic, it was uh, uh, Richard uh, Daly. Uh, how has pretty good. Huh? Before Richard Daly, it was Robert Merriam. I could go on and on. This. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, don't, Ben, don't. Um, but so how has your time here in Chicago formed you? Like how, when you, do you see yourself being a Chicagoan in the way you respond to things? That's what I'm asking. I don't know what a Chicagoan is. There's a Chicagoan who talks like a regular guy going to the movies that was on WXFMT, WXRT. Um, I don't know. Oh, my God. No, okay, so for instance. You'll have to educate me. All right. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's surface-level Chicagoans, uh, and then there's deeper sh- Chicagoans. So a very quintessential Chicago thing is like this assertion that I don't put ketchup on my hot dog because I'm from Chicago. Okay, that's a surface Chicagoan. Then there's a tribalistic Chicagoan. Chicago's a city in neighborhoods. There's a north side, a south side, a west side, a southwest side. The first time I came to recognize this, Sandy, when when I was on the southwest side, I've said this many times in this podcast, people ask me what parish I'm from. I didn't even know what it, parish? I didn't know what a parish was. (laughs) What a parish? Uh, What's a parish? And then they're like, what the? Their mind's blue. Because <laughs> I didn't know what a parish was. So that's Chicago. That's very Chicago. The defensiveness of Chicago, and hence you rushing to point out that Eric Adams is no better than Chicago. That's that defensiveness, that little chip on their shoulder, the feeling that they're always looked down on. They don't re- they're really inferior city. That is Chicago. And then the hate for people who are different than them. That's part of the tribe. That is so Chicago right there. Uh, what else is very Chicago? Doing whatever the boss says, the mayor says, that's very Chicago. You know, Chicago's fall in line. Isn't that how they do it traditionally? We see it a little different now. So these are what I view as like very Chicago traits. Oh, you gotta, you can't root for the Cubs and the White Sox. You got to pick one or the other because you either live on the north side or you live on the south side. That's Chicago. Do you share any of those traits? Well, I stopped eating red meat around 1978. (laughs) So I don't care about the ketchup and the relish and all that stuff. Um, I don't think I'm, maybe I'm just a, a, what do they call it? A a bi-coastal elite, a tri-coastal elite. Wait, what are the tricoastals? I'm losing track. How could it be a tri? Bicoastal elite, but we're the the third coast, right? Oh, I see. We're the, we're the yeah. coast of uh, Lake Michigan. I'm Go just ahead. A okay. Urban cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan, which is was a negative thing people would say about Jews in Europe because yes, they Stalin. they didn't have any patriotism to any one particular country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't associate yourself with any of those uh, very Chicago-esque attitudes? I don't think so. I mean, I'm on the north side, 
and I've always lived in the North side or Evanston. I've always lived in the 44th ward or Evanston. I'm very proud that my post office is named after Steve Goodman. I show that to visitors. Um, I sing the pirate song when I walk <laughs> by the Lincoln Park towing. So I don't know if that's superficial. No, you're not. You're not. You are so not a Chicago. You lived here since 1985. You're the worst Chicago I've ever seen, and God bless you for it. No, actually, um, I came here earlier, and then I left a few times. But yeah, I'm okay. a bad Chicagoan. Yeah, which means you're I, a good Chicagoan. I don't know if I've done dibs or not. I can't remember. <laughs> Dib. That's the other thing. Yeah. What's your opinion yeah. on dibs? Is this, Chicagoans all have to have opinion. What is your opinion on dibs? By the way. I don't know. I'm sorry. You're <laughs> here. I'm probably the only person who's who's conflicted about it. I can see both sides. I can see, you know, you, you worked so hard to get that space. But then it's a space-time problem, right? Because when you're not using the space, why can't someone else use it? But then you're going to come back to the space and they're going to be there. So, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. You are so not a Chicagoan. It's refreshing. I don't know. Maybe I'm uh, still a Houstonian. You know, um, it's funny. My mother grew up in Dallas, but she's been in Houston for almost 75 years. And she's Houston proud. And she'll she'll so, notice some some um, aspect of the street. You know, there's an arch over the street with the name of the street on it, and she goes, "That's so nice, isn't it?" Um, um, okay, so uh, I am now going to uh, show my utter ignorance about everything Texas. So I apologize to all our listeners in Texas, and there's a handful. Uh, so what's the difference between Houston and Dallas in terms of the kind of people who live there? Houston is much more diverse. It's the most diverse city in the country, even though L.A. tries to say that it is and New York says it is. I think in terms of languages, there's more spoken in Houston. Lots and lots of immigrants, um, Vietnamese immigrants, Lots of people from Arab countries who come for the oil um, companies. Um, it's a booming town. Um, it's in some places it's not as segregated as older southern towns because people are just constantly moving and moving and moving. There's still poor black areas, poor brown areas. Um, there's God, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm channeling. I'm channeling some PR promotion here. I'm sorry. I'm hearing like, there's a dynamism of Houston. Um, okay, I will tell you what my mother said. She said when she moved from Dallas to Houston, I think in 1951 as a bride, that there were places she would go in Houston where she would wear gloves. But then she found out in Houston, you didn't have to wear gloves as often as you did in Dallas. Dallas always thought of itself as better, as more refined than Houston. Um, it could be because there was a French colony nearby in some part of the 19th century. Um, 
it has a fashion mart. Um, maybe it had has more art museums. I don't know, but it always thought of itself as just more refined, more artistic, more fashionable. Houston was more wildcat oil guys and um, less tradition. And we get very annoyed. See, maybe I'm still a Houstonian. We get very, very annoyed when people think Dallas is bigger. Because Houston <laughs> is bigger. I mean, they had that TV show. They yes, had that they TV show, Dallas. <laughs> so everybody thinks Dallas is the important one. Could, but Houston's could you please bigger. do the rest of the could you please do the rest of the conversation uh with a Texas accent? I really find that down into uh, you do a good uh, imitation, which is probably not imitation. It's probably really who you are. Uh, and uh, all right. So I've been very um, negligent. I just really enjoyed uh, chatting with you about this. This is great riffs. Uh, so many of them. But since the theme of the book is uh, wandering and searching for homes, I just thought it'd be fun to talk about, you know, the various homes that you and your family have had. Uh there are many essays uh, in this book that I could uh, take the deep dive on. Um, the one about the mikvah is pretty good. I could have taken a deep dive on that one. Um, and uh, but I'm uh, this one here. I've I've read like I've read it twice, uh, and I told you I gave you the ultimate com compliment. It reminded me of one of the greatest Stevie Wonder songs written of all time. Uh, as is the name of the Stevie Wonder song. This is called Up Against It. Uh, so I'm urging everybody to buy the book. And then when you get the book, go to page 160 and read Up Against It and then tell me what she's getting at. Uh, Sandy Weisenberg, I will now read uh, the opening. And then why don't you just riff a little bit about the story and what you were getting at and what you were doing? Because um, here we go. <clears throat> Up Against It. Because I touched the caterpillar to see if it was alive and it reared up as if in pain. Because I drowned the live frog in alcohol, knowing it wasn't for science. Because it was for science, but I was eight or ten and I was not a scientist. I was trying to be a scientist. I had read the directions for suffocating and pinning butterflies, but didn't follow them. Because I love frogs and butterflies and worms and what we call doodle bugs, but you may call roly polies or pill bugs or armadillo bugs, they are shiny, segmented, and primitive. Because I didn't send the names of employees to be paid, didn't send the names in time, and so on and so forth, it goes, I could read the whole thing, but uh, kind of run it on time. It's practically 10 pages or so. Um, because I touched the caterpillar to see if it was still alive and reared up as if in pain. Sandy Weisenberg, what was going on in your mind when you wrote Up Against It? Well, first of all, I'll talk about the form or the style. There is a long, long, long poem called uh, Because. I think it's called Because. Or no, it's called Why I Can't by a poet named Susan Donnelly. And I read it and I don't remember what journal it was in. And I've used that as an exercise sometimes with students, and I use it with myself if I'm trying to get at something and I don't know how to write it. I find that if you know what the first word's going to be, it's easier to write. And I went through a very, very upsetting um, employment situation. And that's what this is about. 
but I started, I was just thinking of things that bothered me. And I have to admit that the first one, people assume I was a kid with a caterpillar. It was like, you know, a few years ago, we were raising caterpillars and I touched it and it reared up and I just felt bad. So it's basically things I feel bad about and sort of maybe defensive and maybe not. And I'm ashamed and want to come clean and I'm trying to figure it out because I write to figure things out. Well, then, to this point, I'll read this section from because uh, from up against it. Because at half my age, I had a story accepted by The New Yorker. Before the story was published, I was afraid I would be hit by a car while riding my bike. After, I was afraid people would take it the wrong way. Years after it came out, I had to explain to a nice young podcaster interviewing me what the context was, what things were among progressives in the 80s and early 90s, U.S. out of Central America, Reagan and Bush the Elder, Iron Contra, protest against nuclear weapons, the old days. Because I wasted my time on this earth. Damn, man, that's that transition right there, Sandy. I don't know. That's pretty damn good. Um, so talk about that paragraph, if you will. Uh, the one where you're reflecting on the 80s and the 90s and where you were politically? Well, it's really about time and how when you're young, you think if you're ambitious and or maybe grandiose, you think, oh, I'm going to be this famous writer. And then it happens when you're 35, you get the story in The New Yorker and then nothing comes from it. And... Um, And then it's so long since you've had that story in the New Yorker that you have to explain the context to somebody. Um, And I remember I was working at the Art Institute and David Sedaris was teaching there too. And I remember this is before he was uplifted, you know, by um, um, WBEZ and and, um, Ira Glass. And I mean, David is great. I don't want to say he doesn't deserve what he has, deserves everything he has. Um, But he said to me, don't you feel like I've been, I'm in the New Yorker, like you go to the post office to buy stamps and you might be annoyed about waiting in line, but you think, oh, wow, I've been in the New Yorker. And I said, no, I don't know if I think of it exactly like that. And then, of course, David became just, you know, always in the New Yorker. Um, it's you. Th- it, it's so much about age. It used to be everybody was older. Everybody who had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish was older. So it's like, oh, I still have time. And now everybody who's accomplished what I want to accomplish is 20 years younger. And you can't live your life dealing with that. Dealing with that, you have to just think, well, I'm just, I just do what I do. But I think of excuses like, oh, well, I, well, I had anxiety or, 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 but you just have to live with it that different people achieve different things. Yeah. And I say, I, what I don't like about, didn't like about Obama is he was younger than I am. (laughs) He is younger than I am. there's this line because from 2008 to 2016, I was older than the president. That's also a line from this. This is a great story, ladies and gentlemen, uh, buy the book just for this story. Yeah. Uh, just, 
Uh, and but this thing, man, this is so. I got this line. I can feel this before this because of half my age. I was I had a story accepted by the New Yorker before the story was published. I was afraid I would be hit by a car while riding my bike. That is like, I mean, you get in your own little world. You wrote your story. You got accepted by a magazine. It's in your life. It's so huge in in your little life. And you're like, oh, my God, what if I die before I see my story in the New Yorker? Oh, Lord, the things people fret about. Right. And I think I didn't ride my bike for a little while before it was published. Um, I I think it's also like maybe it's a Jewish thing or a Catholic thing that something good happens. It can't be something totally good that happens to me. There's got to be something bad with it. You know, I, 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 I can't be totally happy. And the the way that the old Jewish ladies would say, you know, something good and then poop, 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 you know, you spit three times because you don't want the evil eye to come get you when because they've heard that you've experienced something good. Kinahara. Exactly. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Kinahara. Uh, whether you realize it or not, you have the worldview of a Jewish person who grew up in a uh, overwhelmingly Gentile environment. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, somehow or other that translated from, I guess it was dropped, uh, passed on to you from your father who grew up in Mississippi. Uh, whether or no, you know, my, I have a cousin who married a psych psychoanalyst and um, he talks about something called negative Rachofsky attitude. And my mother was a Rachofsky. And so he says that whole family has this like fear, you know, that kind of negative attitude. Like not that they're always negative about life, but they're, they're always afraid something's going to happen. You know, you have a, you know, you're, you're, you're driving from Chicago to Dallas and we haven't heard from you in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and they're, they're, if this is before cell phones, and so we have to, you know, we should call the, the state police. You know, it's that, that anxiety. And somehow my sister got through it, and she doesn't have that. And I don't understand how she got rid of it. Is she uh, a writer? No. <laughs> Does she still live in Texas? Yes. Okay. Uh, and you left, you've been wandering and that's the theme of the book, uh, as kind of, you know, you're wandering, you're searching for a home. Uh, you sort of, in, you're the story of your father and your mother finding their way to Houston, but not really finding their way. And then you leaving, coming to Chicago <laughs> So power other not being Chicago in any way to the point where you have no opinion on dibs. I don't know. It could be one way. It could be the other way. Don't bother me, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I'll be the dibs negotiator. <laughs> but you know what? I'm with you on the dibs thing. 
I'm a hundred percent with you. It's like I can kind of see both sides. Why is it such a big deal? That's Chicago. No, I understand why it's a big deal because after a big snowstorm, it takes a long time yes. to to dig a parking space out. Yeah. How come it's not a big deal? Big deal in New York. How come it's not a big deal in like Denver? Or New Hampshire, where there's plenty of snowstorms. How come it's a big deal in Chicago? There's plenty of places in in the world. Minneapolis, St. Paul, they get more snow than Chicago. I've never heard anyone from Minneapolis talk about dibs. It's a Chicago thing. It gets back to that territorial thing. This is mine. You can't put ketchup on a hot dog. <laughs> Sorry, Sandy. There's something weird about Chicagoans. I think I've I've read about it in other places. Uh, we go. Uh, ben, Eric Adams once uh, said dibs. <laughs> uh, Eric Adams, Ed Koch said it. Uh, everybody, I want you to buy The Wandering Womb. I want you to call the judges uh, at that contest and tell, tell them that Sandy Weisenberg earns uh, the award. She's a great writer, a very funny person, delightful guest, first time ever on my show. Why don't you do uh close with a little promotion remember i told you i wanted you to promote so promote away before we walk away go ahead okay well first of all i'll say i'm for world peace right okay but i am going to be part of exhibit b a literary variety show uh november 9th that's a thursday november 9th 7 p.m it's free. It's at Pilsen Community Books, 1102 West 18th Street, Chicago, Illinois. And I will be performing, reading with Willie Lynn, Michael Dean, Marissa Kerbel, Kerbel and myself. And I think I'm going to do something kind of gross and racy. So Whoa. depending on your uh, attitude. Okay, well, we'll just leave that there. A little te- that's what they call a tease, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, okay. Uh, a tease in the business. Uh, and uh, so very cool. Oh, my God, South Florida. Uh, I just saw South Florida before. That's another great uh, essay in the book. We could have done that one as well. Um, anyway, the name of the book is The Wandering Womb, uh, Sandy Weisenberg, or S period L period Weisenberg. Uh, all right, Sandy, thank you very much uh, for coming on my humble little podcast. Oh, this is very exciting for me. Thank we'll you. Bring you back and force you to talk about the news topics of the day. And then you're going to see. Yeah. And I'll <laughs> say, I can see both sides. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. You can play both sides now. <laughs> yes. My, one of my favorite Joni Mitchell songs. All right. That's uh, Sandy Weisenberg. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 